Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detailed today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. The building's now on the National Register of Historic Places, and they did a $35 All they Whoops. did was put Glade plugins. That's what they did. For $35. Hey there. Thanks for listening to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Today, we're talking about Louise Bethune, the first female architect in the U.S. I'm Lizzie Rahr from San Francisco. I'm Nurjiri Rivas, celebrating being alive in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jessica Rogers, coming to you from Washington, D.C. All right. As always, before we begin, a quick disclaimer. We are not historians or experts. Yeah, so if we got our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning. All right. So today we're talking about Louise Bethune, who was the first practicing female architect in the U.S. She was born Jenny Louise Blanchard on July 21st in 1856 in Waterloo, New York. She went by Louise or Lulu. She grew up an only child because her brother died when he was little. And Louise was sick a lot as a kid, so her parents homeschooled her until she was 11. Her dad was a school principal and a mathematician, and her mom was a school teacher, so she had some good teachers at home. When she was 12, the family moved to Buffalo, New York, so she could attend Buffalo High School. And her classmates called her Lulu, as we said before. A male classmate once told her, Lulu, girls can't be architects. Mm. Excuse me? Right? You know, this isn't the first time that this has happened. (laughs) To like yeah. any of these ladies. 
That's true. But this actually reminds me of a story of my own. So one time in class, we had to talk about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I must have been around like seven or eight. And when I said I wanted to be an architect, a girl started to cry. And she started telling me, no, please don't do that. And I was like, what? Why? That's how I talked when I was little. And, <laughs> and anyway, and so she told me in her tears, my mother is an architect and I never get to see her. Oh, no. That's so sad. But it's like not surprising, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But like, still, though, like, what does that say about our profession and the women that want to become architects? Well, yeah, but I also remember thinking, wow, I'm going to be so busy and important. I won't get to see my children. Cool. <laughs> I really, I really want to be an architect now. Wait, Mother what? of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was a little kid, so I, I had no idea what that really meant. But yeah. I think, well, when I was little, my parents worked a lot, too. And especially my father, he traveled most of the year for his career. And I really looked up to my parents like they were my heroes, like any child. So maybe that was my idea of success, traveling a lot and working hard. I don't know. And not being home. Not being home <laughs> meant, <laughs> meant I was important, like my parents were important to right. me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So sorry I digressed. That's my story. Great story. <laughs> Continue with Louise. Okay. What happened? Lulu. 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 What happened back to, to Lulu? Back to Lulu. So later in life, she talked about the boy who teased her. And she said that it made her actually consider the profession more. At first, it was kind of like in retaliation for what he said, but then she started to explore it and she became really absorbed in the profession. Nice. I think that's how a lot of us also do it. Like, right. We have to like prove it to ourselves that we can make it so right. one way or the other. Yeah. So after she graduated high school, she taught, traveled and studied for two years she was preparing to go to Cornell University. They had recently opened a school of architecture there and she was planning to attend. And during those two years, she started working as a draftsman for Richard A. Waite, an architect in Buffalo. And she ended up deciding not to attend Cornell and to keep working instead. So Buffalo at that time was a bit of an architectural hotspot Big name architects like Daniel Burnham, Louis Sullivan, and H.H. Richardson were getting commissions in the city. I see you, Lizzie, mentioning H.H. Richardson like some sort of super famous architect. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all know that by now. Yeah. yeah. Remember, Nergity? You, you've learned. I remember. I've learned that he's a famous architect. Yes. I'm sorry for all the fans I offended. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she kept working for Richard A. Waite. She worked eight to six, didn't get paid much, but working at an office meant that she had access to the architectural library so that she could learn and study what she could about construction and the profession. It's interesting. Back in the day, the profession was very focused on apprenticeship. So you actually, you didn't really need to go to architecture school to become an architect. You could work under an architect and learn from them. 
And today, some states still allow this to happen. In the state of New York, for example, if you graduate from high school and work under an architect for 12 years, you're eligible to take the licensing exam. And if you pass, you become an architect. But still, most of us are architects today. We go to school. We go to the university route. Yeah, that's true. California also has an apprenticeship route as well to licensing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So. After working with Richard Waite for five years, she started her own firm in Buffalo, and she was only 25 years old. I feel like there is this professional clock ticking away, and I'm close to my golden years to start a firm when I'm listening to these stories. Uh, I don't think so, because remember, like most architects, they actually start their own firms after they turn 30 or 40 today. Yeah, say so. I know, but it's so many of these ladies were starting their firm so young back in the day. Yeah, But they also were having babies and getting married young, so. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So when Louise started her firm, she became the first woman architect in the U.S. Cool. Nice. What year was it? 1881. And shortly after that, she married Robert Bethune, and he had worked with her at Richard Waite's office. Ooh, an office romance. Scandalous! (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So after they got married, he actually came and worked at her firm with her, and the firm was called Bethune and Bethune. That's really cool. So right as she opened her firm, Buffalo was expanding their school system, and so Bethune and Bethune got to design 18 schools over the years. Louise definitely concentrated on public schools in her work since she did so many of them, but she refused to be a one-trick pony when it came to the type of projects she took and worked on. In an 1893 biography of Louise, it said, Mrs. Bethune refuses to confine herself exclusively to that branch, believing that women who are pioneers in any profession should be proficient in every department and that now at least women architects must be practical superintendents as well as designers and scientific constructors, and that women's complete emancipation lies in equal pay for equal service. (laughs) What a thought. (laughs) Yeah, to think a hundred years later and we still have not been emancipated. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was just reading an article by Jean Gang She's an FAIA and a MacArthur Fellow and the founder of Studio Gang, which does really nice work. But that's beside the point. And she talks about how, to her, the first step to address gender issues in the architecture field is super obvious. It's to address equal pay. So her firm used a specific assessment tools to analyze pay in her firm and realized that they also had a problem paying men more than women and they immediately addressed it and now the firm is officially has a policy of gender pay equity if only more firms could be like that yeah Yeah. she calls Mm -hmm. for more firms to do it for sure i love that they looked back at themselves also and took the initiative to make changes immediately so louise didn't want to be put into one category specifically And she was adamant that female architects shouldn't be pigeonholed into just residential architecture or things that might be considered more domestic, quote unquote. You know, some things just like don't change because 
Louise said it. Norma faced it later on. Um, Jane Drew faced it. Some Mm -hmm. some um, women architects still face it today with the projects that they get a chance to work on. Yeah. So with that in mind, Louise and Robert took any commissions that were available to them. And in the 23 years the firm was open, they designed all different kinds of projects, commercial buildings, industrial buildings, schools, public buildings, church, prison, all types. That's really neat that she worked on such a wider range of projects. I like that. I also would like to design a whole bunch of different projects myself, even a prison. That sounds like a very technical and challenging project. Yeah, a lot of variables to consider with that type of a program. Mm hmm. So Louise handled most of the design and construction work for the firm. And I think this was partly because she was trying to assert herself in the industry because it was so male dominated. The media definitely made comments about her saying that she couldn't be an architect. A biographer wrote that it was thought that a woman couldn't be an architect and supervise construction and wear a dress at the same time. Yeah, because, you know, wearing that dress sure gets in the way. You know, just you wear a dress and can't do anything. You fall but over. In, yeah. But in realness, I like that she asserted herself that way. But I wonder what kind of work did her husband do? Because strategically, it would be interesting to think that her husband was responsible for like getting like the commissions on projects and like working on the business development side. But it was old homegirl Louise or Lulu that was making the projects come to life. That's what I like to think in my <laughs> Can we call her Lulu from now on? Sure. That's what they called her. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that's that was the case. But I think it's so funny that the dress issue was a legitimate argument at one point to keep women from being architects. I know. I can't. <laughs> yeah. I definitely have worn dresses to construction sites. Just saying. Have and you? Didn't... Yeah. Oh, I have not. Oh, because yeah, if they call you like I sometimes if they call you there unexpectedly and like I didn't like I, got, I just got dressed that day, you know, but it doesn't affect my eyesight to see if things are done correctly or not. You know, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so at the turn of the century, there were less than 40 women working in architecture in North America, which, as we know from last week's episode, hasn't changed dramatically in the following 120 years with only 20% of architects being women. I wonder if they just allowed women to wear pants, if that would have made a difference. Like, (laughs) we would have had a lot more women architects if they just knew they could wear pants. Because maybe they could see buildings. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So ridiculous. Who knows? So at the end of the 19th century, a lot of scientific developments happened in sanitation, ventilation, and fireproofing. And Lulu put these new elements into her designs. Her design for the Denton, Cotier, and Daniels Music Store was one of the first structures built with steel frame construction and fire-resistant concrete slabs. She designed her schools with wide hallways and two fire exits, which is now a code requirement for public buildings. Lulu, ahead of the code. Yep. (laughs) So Lulu's most well-known project is the Hotel Lafayette in Buffalo. The hotel was steel frame and concrete construction, used the latest fire codes, and it was seven stories and had 225 rooms. And every room had hot and cold running water and a phone, which was very high-end at the time. Ooh, it sounds very innovative. 
more so than high end, but most of all, like cutting edge and ahead of its time. For sure. The building is now on the National Register of Historic Places and had a $35 million rehab done to it in 2012. Ooh, sounds like a future art venture. Ooh. <laughs> okay, I have a question. Did Louise have any kids? Yes. She and Robert had one son, Charles W. Bethune. He was born in 1883, and around that time, they hired another architect to be part of their firm named William L. Fuchs. He became a partner in 1890, and the firm was then Bethune, Bethune, and Fuchs. So in 1885, Louise became a member of the Western Association of Architects. She was also elected to be the first female member of the AIA in 1888. And when the organizations merged, she became the first female fellow in the AIA. Okay, but elected. There's something that doesn't seem right to me about that. But now that I think about it, the only way to be allowed to join the AIA would be through this elected juried process, right? Like, We briefly mentioned in last week's episode that the AIA at the beginning was trying to standardize the profession. So they had to prove that all of their members would uphold that standard. And for Louise, she might have been the first one to prove that based on her experience that she should become a member of the AIA. But she also had other architects on her side, like Daniel Burnham and Louise Sullivan, who both had leadership positions at the AIA during that time, which worked out in her favor. So. Right. They were definitely advocating for her to be part of the AAA and be elected yeah. as a member. Yeah. So, so she was really lucky that she had those people mm-hmm. in her corner. Yeah. Yeah. Those are big names. For mm-hmm. sure. So Louise spoke out a lot about women working in the field of architecture. On March 6th, 1891, she spoke to the Women's Educational and Industrial Union in Buffalo And she started the talk saying that she was asked to speak on women in architecture, but she was changing the title to women and architecture. And she explained this change by saying, in order to have a topic at all, we must talk of women and architecture, assuming a connection, which is hardly safe to assert. She felt that other professions like doctors and lawyers really needed women to bring a different perspective to the profession. But she said, there is no need whatsoever for a woman architect. No one wants her. No one yearns for her. And there is no special line in architecture to which she is more adapted than a man. The woman architect has exactly the same work to do as a man. When a woman enters the profession, she will be met kindly and will be welcome. Not only as a woman, only as an architect. I don't get it. Can you say that? Well, that was a lot. So maybe you have to say it all again. But wait, so is she saying there is no such thing as a woman or a man architect, that they are both simply architects? Right. She felt that an architect's gender didn't change anything about how they approach the project and that they're on equal playing fields when entering the profession and that there wasn't a need to differentiate between the two of them. So to a certain degree, I think I understand what she's saying. Like when it comes to a design problem, it shouldn't matter if you're a man or a woman. There's just architecture is architecture. Anybody can design. However, we all know that that isn't true and that's not what the profession becomes or nearly of what it is today. There's definitely 
something to be said about a woman designing a space versus a man. Exactly. And I think for sure. Because we see it today, like with right. parks and uh, bathrooms. Everything. Okay. Bathroom. <laughs> just bathrooms. <laughs> How many times do we stand in line in bathrooms? I just. Yeah. Ladies, we all know. We all. Yeah, just, for sure. I think it's a very idealistic um, way to think about it. And obviously like early in the profession being created, I think she was hopeful that that's how it would be, but we know that is not necessarily how it turned out. Yeah. And in previous episodes, we've talked about that, how like women from their perspective, they were able to influence some of the design issues Mm -hmm. that I think maybe Louise didn't like, I think of Jane Drew and how she like, advocated for the change of the design code yeah the kitchen design yeah so my guess is that louise wasn't in the kitchen she probably had people (laughs) in the kitchen but like we don't know we don't know know. but to jane's uh, point that's one of the ways that like a man wouldn't have thought that sure it took a woman to come up with that and i think that's where uh, louise's statement is flawed but you may continue Yeah. So she encouraged the women and urged them not to settle for lower level tasks, but to be ambitious and reach higher and do better. She said the total number of women graduates from the various schools of the country can hardly exceed a dozen. And most of these seem to have renounced ambition with the attainment of a degree. But there are among them a few brilliant and energetic women for whom the future holds great possibilities. There are also a few women drafting in various offices throughout the country, and the only respect in which they fall below their brothers is in disinclination to familiarize themselves with the practical questions of actual construction. They shirk the brick-and-mortar, rubber-boot, and ladder-climbing period of investigative education, and as a consequence, they remain at the tracing stage of draftsmanship. There are hardly more successful women draftsmen than women graduates but the next decade will doubtless give us a few thoroughly efficient architects from their number. Hmm. Well, for one, I don't think homegirl recognizes her own privilege. But yeah. um, in a sense, my hope is that she is advocating for women to use their degree to progress in the world and not stay stagnant, I mm-hmm. believe is what she is trying to say. But and that like once you're in the office, like as women, you should advocate for more responsibility that may not seem traditional. So like like going out in the field and see the built environment and actually design and lead in a project. Yeah, I totally agree. I initially had a very negative reaction to everything that Lizzie said. Yeah, I mean, it's a really (laughs) harsh quote, right? It reads very harshly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It sounded to me like she was scolding women mm-hmm. and not recognizing the struggles women were facing. Yeah. Uh-huh. But like like Jessica said, it sounds like she had a few blind spots. Yeah. But also, <laughs> Just yeah, the way Jessica broke it down for me, I think I can see the point and begin to agree with her in a few aspects. I mean, agree with Lulu. Right. I yeah. do agree that, yeah, like pushing women to kind of like Jessica said, like more, take more responsibility and not settle mm-hmm. for what like society mm-hmm. is, says is okay for a woman to do yeah. is obviously a great thing. But yeah, there are more struggles. There's more factors going into that. Mm-hmm. I feel like that like, she's yeah. not she's acknowledging. I don't think women, I don't think women were just settling all no. the time. <laughs> right. I yeah. mean, there's, there's probably are a group 
of like sure. some women that are like, you know what? I like drafting. I know that at six o'clock I can go home and put dinner on the table and like yeah. fair. Be done. But that, yeah, I think that she basically wanted to say like, you can go out in the field and with your skirt and look at how bricks get laid. Like your skirt doesn't blind you from that. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Just. Mm. Right. So her discomfort with differentiating female architects from male architects came up again in the lead up to the 1893 World's Fair. She boycotted the design competition for the women's building that was being planned. Men who designed any of the other buildings for the event were paid $10,000 plus fees for construction drawings. And the prize for the design of the women's building was $1,000 for both design and construction drawings. Are you kidding me? A tenth. A tenth? That's Mm -mm. so ridiculous. (laughs) I know. Mm. It's interesting that, okay, so there's a lot right there that uh, I have comments on. (laughs) But my first thought is the idea of design competitions, because I feel like that is something that a lot of architects feel today. Like, money aside on this fee mm-hmm. thing, why did Louise, I mean, Lulu, not like competitions <laughs> or this competition in particular? Right. So she was anti-juried competitions in general, not just for the fair. The fair one was a whole other thing. But people judging these competitions often weren't familiar with architectural drawings and how to read them, which meant that they picked a project that often went over budget and couldn't be built because they might have just been picking it for aesthetic reasons. Um, And there's also the issue of favorites being picked and it getting political or competing architects lowering their fees in order to win the work. That's so true. And also competitions can be a huge waste of money and resources because usually you don't get any sort of monetary compensation unless you win. So then only a certain amount of people or firms that can afford to make it rain without (laughs) money coming in can sign up for these. And that can be really toxic. Yep. Yes. Yes to all of those things. And honestly, (laughs) it's the same today. Like for me, for example, I don't see the appeal uh, for competitions. Like when I was a recent graduate from architecture school and I was like looking for work and freelancing. I would have loved to enter competitions, but there was no way that I could enter or I could even afford that entry fee. And then when I started working, I also witnessed like firsthand how competitions negatively affected office culture. So like although in the office setting, I didn't work on the competitions, but I saw my colleagues working extremely long hours and long nights on competitions. And I know that they weren't being compensated for it. Right. I've lived that and it's not fun to say the very least. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, so we talked about competitions. Back to the original statement with Lulu. What is the deal with this women's building? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let's go back to the tenth of a prize money. Makes no sense. (laughs) Because yeah. So the women's building was a specific building at the fair that showcased works done by women in various fields, literature, fine art, science and music, to name a few. 
And Louise stated that the idea of a separate women's board expresses a sense of inferiority that businesswomen are far from feeling. There was a specific 117 member board of lady managers that were spearheading the women's building. And she just felt like there didn't need to be a differentiation between men and women and which buildings they could compete to design for the fair, which I don't know if like, I'm sure women could have competed to design the other buildings, but like, as we know, they probably wouldn't have Get picked. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay, I think I can see where she's going with this because it kind of goes back to her earlier statements about how she felt of women being separated from the men architects and Mm -hmm. why women, because in my head, I think she believes that women, when you separate women, we're like other than, whereas Mm -hmm. we should be all in the same arena as the men. Yeah, exactly. I can see where she was coming from. But like we talked about before, I think knowing what we know today, it was naive and that it's important for women or other underrepresented groups to have spaces for them to be showcased. So I can see why the women's building was something important, but it is atrocious that the prize money was so different for Mm -hmm. the women's building versus other buildings that were being designed for the fair. It kind of reminds me of the women's soccer team. Well, Ooh, women yeah. soccer in general, how yeah. they get paid nothing compared to men. Yeah. Women's sports in general, because that happens in basketball, too. Yeah. In the WNBA versus the NBA. And it's interesting because we think about pay equity like we were just talking about that in firms. But what about competitions like this women's building versus the men? Right. Like, it's not just labor like oh, so many it's things everywhere so it's many everywhere. things <laughs> so yeah. many things oh and don't even get me started on the pink tax but just sorry <laughs> no. sorry i just got like we don't, have time. <laughs> we don't have enough time <laughs> no time for that <laughs> so as you could see lulu was very outspoken about equal pay for women but also for ethical treatment of all architects she also believed in co-ed architecture schools promoted creating a licensure program for architects. And that wouldn't be something she would get to see in her home state of New York during her lifetime, but it was something that she fought for and supported. It's really wonderful to think that part of the reason we are here today is thanks to her. So thank you, Lulu, for fighting the fight. Right. But so I was reading an article about her and it said that like learning about Lulu made them realize how women's history is often erased or forgotten because, I mean, she was the first woman architect and it feels like she would have been more celebrated and well-known because, I mean, as a society, we often idolize the people who were the first. And I was thinking, wow, that's such a good point because her projects didn't gain a lot of like national notoriety. They were pretty much all in Buffalo, so mostly local work. And I think Maybe that's part of the reason that she was sort of forgotten. And she was on the cusp of new technical developments, but her projects were definitely more like utilitarian, functional, and not necessarily like kind of those architect projects, right? For sure. And I think that's why we're making this podcast today, because we want to share those stories mm-hmm. so that those stories aren't forgotten. Because, yeah, the the architects that we see today that are the famous ones are usually the ones that design like either for big cities or they design like 
the flashy museum or the skyscraper or some other like thing that might receive recognition. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Louise's firm was in the Buffalo City Directory until 1910. And she passed away on December 18th, 1913, at the age of only 57. What? Oh, man, she was so young. I know. And I couldn't find much more information than she died. So I don't know what she died of, why she died young. So, yeah. Mm. But before we leave you, we have to tell you about who our karyotid is for this week's episode. Jessica. Can you remind us what a karyotid is? Sure thing, chicken wing. Okay, so some background. A karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. So each episode will choose a karyotid or a woman who is working today furthering the profession through their work and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. Thank you. So, without further ado, this week's karyotid is... Jane Frederick. Yay! Yay! Jane! (laughs) So, Jane Frederick is the current president of the AIA. Yep. She's also a fellow at the AIA, and she graduated from Auburn University, and she met her husband in studio there. And they started a firm together in South Carolina called Frederick and Frederick, much like Louise and Robert. Cute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so their firm is primarily residential and restoration projects, and they focus a lot on how to work with and adapt to the environment and how they can use it to their advantage. And they try to use new technology to get closer to net zero, which is where all the building's energy is produced on site. And she also ran for the U.S. House of Representatives in 1998, actually. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's always so cool to hear about architects and politics. Right. So awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So as the president of the AIA, she's trying to promote action on climate within the building profession. And she's also advocating for diversity, equity and inclusion. She reminds me of how Louise was such an advocate for women in the profession, trying to push the envelope on new technologies and her designs and all of that. Yes. So I saw her speaking last year, which means that she was the vice president of the AIA, right, Jessica? Correct. Okay. And she talked about how she was motivated to run for office because she wanted to advocate for change. And even though she lost that race in the House of, what was it, Lizzie? Representatives. Thank you. Um, that, that loss motivated her to become more involved in the AIA. And now she's, now in 2020, she's the president of AIA National. That's yeah. super cool. It I so feel like is. We can all do it. We can. And I've heard Jane speak multiple times and she's so nice and she's so cool. And she's definitely an advocate for the profession. And she's like a huge proponent of advocating of what she believes. I mean, homegirl ran for political office. Like, I think it also shows the whole thing that we've been talking about. Like, we believe we can do it because we've seen it done. Mm. Yeah. Like, um, 
we're super grateful that these women are doing it. And yeah. Mm-hmm. The whole mentorship of it all, right? Yeah. For sure. Woo! Go women! <laughs> <laughs> Architects! <laughs> all right. It's here. The end of our episode. Oh! I know. This one was fun. Yeah. They're all fun. <laughs> this is our last one. This is the last one of the season. Yeah. And we'll have one more. As a recap. Yes, we'll have a recap episode of the season next week. So we want to thank CMYK, fellow Syracuse graduates, for our music. You can find them on Spotify. Thanks to John W., our technical producer, who we definitely couldn't do this without. And most of all, to you listeners, thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed learning about Louise and Jane, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other professional ladies in our next season. Yes. So there's a, there's going to be an episode next week, so stay tuned for that. But please let us know what you thought about our episodes and for the season. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us always your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on our website at shebuildspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and Twitter at shebuildspod. Okay, well, until then, bye. Bye. Can we pause? Osman, cierra la puerta del baño, por favor. Gracias. Sí, estamos grabando. If we keep this in our episode as a cold open, it'll make us all international. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if, if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. <laughs> <laughs> the official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.